Well, welcome back to the Powell View Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle, the lead pastor here at Powell View Christian Church in beautiful Central Oregon. It's good to have you with us. Um, we're going through the book of Hebrews, but we paused and have done a mini-series based on Hebrews chapter 6 when we were told about the basics of our faith, the foundations. And so this is a mini-series that will lead us up to Easter, uh, talking about the foundations of our faith. And so we're in the middle of that. We've already looked at repentance and faith. And now we come to baptism. Now, baptism is one of those things that we talk about here a lot, but I don't remember the last time we actually preached on baptism. It's one of those issues that was obviously important to the early church. In the New Testament book of Acts, for instance, it might surprise you to see that there's absolutely no unbaptized believers. Baptism is, baptism is brought up time and time and time again by the writers of the New Testament, beginning with the gospel accounts and going through Paul's letters, uh, and then Hebrews, and then Peter's letters as well. See, Paul likens baptism to death, uh, burial, and resurrection, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So in Romans 6, 3, 4, he says, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father we too may live a new life. Peter likens baptism to the saving of Noah and his family when God destroyed the world through the flood. First Peter chapter 3, he says, in the ark, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Jesus himself was baptized, as he said, to fulfill all righteousness. And then he instructed his disciples in the Great Commission to go and baptize people. He says in Matthew 28, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, when it comes to baptism, I'm not sure why there's so much debate, because it seems pretty clear that the Word of God is clear. Um, baptism is a part of what it means to be a disciple from first to last. Make disciples, Jesus said, and by making disciples, you're going to teach them what I've taught, a part of which is the importance of being obedient through faith into the waters of baptism. Now, what I want to do mostly today is to show you from Scripture itself that baptism is something that's a part of what it means to be a disciple, and that it really is, more than anything else, an amazing piece of evidence of your faith in the saving power of God's grace. But real quick, knowing that we've got people from different denominational backgrounds listening to this, let me tell you what we have found here at Palview Christian Church, our leadership in our um, understanding of the original language of the New Testament. Uh, we, we see that the word baptism actually comes from a Greek word, baptizo. Uh, we didn't translate it, we transliterated it, and therein lies a lot of the problems that have occurred uh, for the last several hundred, if not more than a thousand years. Baptizo literally means to immerse. Now, if we had just translated it, immerse, I think we would have been fine. But we, uh, at the time that they were trying to uh, make this more accessible to people, they, they realized that there was now many modes of baptism, and so they didn't want to just say immerse because some people were being poured over, some people were being sprinkled, and so rather than make waves, we just said, you know, we'll, we'll just take the Greek word baptizo and make it baptize. Now, the, the, the term would have been used in other contemporary ancient Greek literature uh, to describe a ship that had sunk. So when we talk about baptism here, we, we do teach about 
full immersion in water as being baptized. But also, baptism has something to do with purification. Again, in, in Hebrews 6.2, we are told of the foundations of our faith. There are repentance and faith. We've talked about those two things. Then he says instruction about washings. Keep that word in mind. About the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Interesting, that word washing is the same word, baptizo, to immerse. But what I just read to you is the English Standard Version, the ESV. Their translation of washing there is actually a pretty good one because there's a connection between baptism and ceremonial washings. Um, the ceremonial washings would be for purification in Judaism. Um, in the Bible and other Jewish texts, immersion for ritual purification was done to restore ritual purity in certain instances. For example, according to the Mosaic Law, Jews would become unclean if they came into contact with something dead. The law then would require them to go through these washings, these immersions, before being allowed to take part in temple worship and other social interactions. It was then this intention to be washed clean, purified ceremonially, that the authors of the New Testament connected baptism to. Now, at this point, I want to pause and tell you what is clearly written in Scripture in regard to the remedy of our sins, lest you hear something I'm not saying. Listen to these passages. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-20. through 20. For you know that it, it was not with perishable things that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Colossians 1, 19-20, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So you see, I'm not saying that water, the water in baptism is the agent of salvation. That water doesn't save you. In fact, when we baptize people, it's not holy water that we use. It's common water that comes from the plumbing. We're not saved by the water. There's too much evidence in the Bible that makes it clear that the agent of salvation is Jesus' blood. And yet, we must ask how we respond to all that the Bible says then about the power of baptism and how it connects us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and plays then such a huge part in our demonstration of faith. See, I, I know the typical question is, well, is baptism necessary for salvation? Now, that's a lot to unpack in that question. Necessary? Essential? Is it necessary? Now, in my own study, I'm, I'm studying what it means to be saved, what salvation is all about. Um, I've discovered some cool things. Like, for instance, did you know that the Bible speaks of three distinct and yet connected experiences of salvation? There is, of course, the moment of your conversion. That's what most people think of when they say, are you saved? It's like, well, when were you saved? Uh, they, they want to know that moment of conversion. Um, the, the scripture uh, calls that justification. That's when it's just as if you've never sinned. Uh, you've been justified. You've been forgiven. Slate is wiped clean. Beautiful. But the Bible also talks about salvation as an ongoing cleansing of our sinful nature because we still struggle with our sinful nature. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us and chips away at what is not godly and recreates in us the, the image of Jesus. He makes us holy. This salvation is sometimes known as sanctification, but they use the same word, salvation. 
are you being saved? And then finally, there's the moment that we step from this life into eternity, where we no longer have to struggle with that sinful nature because we're, we've been made perfect. We're with the Lord. This is known in Scripture as glorification. Um, and again, it's the same word, being saved. Yeah. So when, when I get asked that question, is baptism necessary for salvation? I, I like to shoot back my question. Well, which salvation are you talking about? And by the way, I want you to see that because the scriptures uses it for justification, sanctification, and glorification, I think that's a pretty good indication that salvation is a process. Yes, it begins with conversion. It ends in heaven. And if that's the case, then I think you can very well make a case that the Bible does say, yes, baptism is a necessary part of this process. But salvation is by God's grace, you might say. Traits, by God's grace. It's nothing that I've done, and absolutely. But it's by grace through faith. In fact, if you did a search, there is no place in Scripture at all that just says grace alone. Those two words together are not found in the Bible anywhere. The closest we come is that Ephesians 2, 8. Okay? And we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, I, I think we could probably... Because it's connected, baptism is connected to salvation, I think that we can confidently ask this question. Well, okay, so you ask, is baptism necessary for salvation? Let me ask you this. Is faith necessary for salvation? Well, again, Romans 2.8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes, yes, it is God's grace that made a way to our salvation, but there's clearly a response necessary there in Scripture, that we must take in order to receive the salvation. Even if God called somebody specifically to faith, there's a response that is always called for. Remember, Hebrews 11.1 1 is faith is the evidence, the proof of things not seen. For example, Paul, the apostle, is uh, relating his conversion story in, in the book of Acts chapter 22. Uh, his conversion had taken place several chapters before this, but he's telling the story, and he's, he, he talked about how he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians, and he was blinded by this great light, and he hears the voice of Jesus, who says, why are you persecuting me? And he goes, who are you, Lord? He goes, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So then Jesus tells him to get up and go into the city and uh, go meet with a man named Ananias. So according to Paul, again in Acts 22, Ananias lays hands on him to restore his sight and then shares the gospel with him. And then Ananias says to Paul, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be, Paul, his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So Paul was saved, called by God's grace. But there was faith as well. He had to respond. His faith involved a response that was clear. Get up and get baptized, calling on Jesus' name. Now, you know what? Be baptized when you feel like you're ready to be baptized. Or, or well, why don't you go through this four-week course on the meaning of baptism, and then, then we'll get you uh, baptized. Ananias says, what are you waiting for? Get up, do it, and calling on Jesus' name as you are baptized. By the way, for those who like to quote Romans 10.13, 
that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's pretty plain in Acts 22 that Ananias saw a connection between calling on the name of the Lord and being baptized. Interesting. When Paul was imprisoned then, in his missionary journeys because of the gospel, he was in Philippi. He had the opportunity to pass along the same message of grace, faith, grace, faith, obedience. Paul and Silas were thrown into jail. And instead of commiserating, they were singing praises. And right around midnight, there was this huge earthquake that occurs, and it breaks open all the cell doors so all the prisoners could escape. The shackles miraculously fell off, and the jailer knew that his life was in stake now, because when you're a Roman jailer and your prisoners have gone free, your life is gone. So he's getting ready to kill himself, and Paul calls out and says, Don't! Don't do it! Everybody's still here! And then in Acts 16, the jailer brings... Paul and Silas out and says, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then, then, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. So they're teaching, like Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, teach everything that I've commanded you. So they were speaking the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them washed their wounds because they had been beaten up before they got thrown into jail. And then immediately, immediately, he and all of his family were baptized. A physical response to their belief. I think these incidents in the life of the early church make it plain that baptism is the evidence of some pretty powerful things going on in our life. God offers salvation. God gives us the opportunity to receive salvation. But then God commands that there be evidence of our salvation. Evidence of our faith, evidence of our obedience, and evidence of our salvation. And that's where I want to park today. First of all, baptism is evidence of faith. You have to have a lot of trust to give your body and put it into the hands of somebody who is going to dunk you underwater, right? See, there's a lot of trust there, and that mirrors the trust that we have in the saving power of Jesus. You know, we don't baptize ourselves. Okay, It's not a work that we do. It's, it's a trust in, in somebody else doing something for us. It's, a, it's an act of faith that is a type of a greater act of faith when we trust in the work of Jesus saving us on the cross. He did the work through his life, death, and burial, and resurrection. Then God then calls us to trust what Jesus did was good enough to open the way to eternal life. We don't have to follow the law anymore perfectly in order for us to get to eternal life. But there's there's repercussions. Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. And so by going through baptism, you are declaring your faith in that principle that Jesus died and was risen again. And we proclaim the, our faith in that and our trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, if you've watched a baptism before, you can see how going under the water is being connected to death and burial. And of course, when somebody raises you up out of the water, you see how that connects to Jesus's resurrection. So Paul puts it like this in Romans 6. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So our baptism is evidence of this faith, this trust that we have, that because he lives, we too 
will live. Um, number two, because baptism is an evidence of faith, then accordance with what we studied last week, we can say that baptism is also evidence of our obedience. Jesus said it like this in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now that sounds like a Jewish mother. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Jesus commands us to be baptized. Therefore, baptism is a profound act that serves as proof that we have a willing heart to obey. And so I could then even ask a third question. Is baptism necessary? Is faith necessary? Let me ask you this. Is your heart necessary in the work of salvation? I think so. I don't think God just said, hey, I want you to go through this meaningful, meaningless ritual that through that I'll give you eternal life. From the very beginning, God has wanted our hearts. And by being willing to submit and being obedient in baptism, it shows God where our heart is. Abraham's example showed his heart, faith that is willing to obey. It's, it's all about our heart. It's our, our intent, our desire to be in an obedient relationship with our God. On the day of Pentecost, for example, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles and the disciples, Peter preaches this sermon. <laughs> this is all in Acts chapter 2. When he was done, we're told 3,000 people believed that God raised Jesus from the dead, and 3,000 were baptized. Again, you, you hear the message, you have faith, you express faith, and then you're baptized. There's an obedience there. Um, when people, though, go back to Romans 10, verse 9 this time, and say, well, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It doesn't say anything about baptism there. Well... What do you think Paul meant by confessing Jesus as Lord? Don't you understand what a Lord is? It's a, it's a boss. It's a CEO. It's a ruler. It's one you obey. And so if that ruler, that Lord, says, I want you to be baptized, and we say, no, then our hearts are not willing, and therefore, there is no, well, it's, if there's no obedience, that's another issue that we have to deal with. So, if you say Jesus is Lord, but don't walk in obedience, what does that say about the power of that kind of faith? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's got to be more than just our words. It's got to be a willing heart to obey. Now, it should be getting clearer and clearer that it's about our intention, the willingness to obey. So, for instance, some like to bring up the thief on the cross uh, to whom Jesus imparted salvation. The fact that he was saved apart from being baptized, to, to me, is one of those silly arguments where people say, see, I don't have to be baptized. He wasn't baptized. Of course he wasn't baptized. He couldn't get baptized. There was no way for him to come down from the cross, get baptized, and then get back on the cross. But Jesus did say to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because Jesus saw his heart, his intention. The thief was willing to obey. While everybody else was hurling insults on him, the, the thief was willing to stand up and say, I... I know who you are, and I believe in who you are. Um, his confession of who Jesus was as he hung there demonstrates a heart change, a willingness to obey. Now, all of this is to demonstrate from the New Testament that baptism is evidence of salvation. In other words, baptism is our way to demonstrate what God did in saving us. Now, some have likened baptism to a wedding ring something that symbolizes a commitment that you make in your heart. 
I like to say baptism is actually the wedding ceremony, a public statement that you make that brings in accountability and confirms what you've already decided in your heart to do. There's an intriguing incident in the faith journey of Abraham back in Genesis. We spoke of this for the past couple of weeks. But Abraham was called by God to respond in faith, and God gave Abraham a promise. And again, in Genesis 15, we're told that Abraham believed God, believed that he could fulfill that promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And from last week, if you recall, this belief characterized the entirety of Abraham's life. It was there at the beginning, if you recall, when he... uh, when God called him to leave his father's house. It was there when God gave him the promise of descendants that would outnumber the stars in the sky. And it was there when God tested his heart to see if Abraham truly trusted in his power. So Abraham is considered righteous in Genesis 15. You might say he's been saved in Genesis 15. Then two chapters later, two chapters later, God reestablishes that covenant promise with Abraham and lays out the terms of the covenant in Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. See, God speaks to Abraham, this man that he had already counted as righteous, okay, two, two chapters before. And he confirms this covenant promise with, with Abram, and then he commands that there be a mark of that covenant that would forever be a sign that there has been an agreement, a covenantal relationship between God and Abraham and his descendants. Not that Abraham was circumcised and then God counted it to him as righteous. That happened two chapters previous, but Abraham once again demonstrates a heart that is willing to obey when God has him go through this ritual of circumcision. In other words, it was the circumcision was evidence of Abraham's faith, his obedience, and his salvation. So now we jump back to the New Testament teachings of Paul in Colossians 2. In verses 11 and 12, he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul is, do you see this? Paul is connecting the mark of the old covenant, which was circumcision, to now the mark of the covenant in the New Testament, baptism. Now, Again, I think that this we could start to look at baptism as the mark of the new covenant, especially when we receive teaching in the New Testament regarding letting uh, letting go of the old self, let, letting that old self die, to cut that part off. Um, we're crucified with Christ, and now uh, we are a new creation. Okay? Without circumcision, Abraham would not have had evidence of being a new man. Without baptism, it would be seem that Scripture would come to the same conclusion. My final passage for this message comes, again, from the book of Acts, where a Gentile man, a Roman centurion, in fact, a guy named Cornelius, had been preached the gospel message by Peter. And according to Acts chapter 10, Peter was preaching, and the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished 
that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So you see, the Holy Spirit had come. They had received the Holy Spirit. I, I think that you could probably say that they were now saved. I don't think there's a way of disputing that. But it was once the Holy Spirit came on them that they received the Holy Spirit that Peter was moved to command them to immediately be baptized. So again, as we saw last week, faith comes first. And then immediately after that is the evidence of faith. Just like Cornelius and his crew had done, they were obedient to the command to be baptized. So baptism was also an evidence of their salvation. Well, that's all that I have. So it is a little bit uh, shorter sermon this week, which is nice because we're going to have baptisms uh, today. Um, and uh, that will be an exciting thing. If you are listening at home and you want to learn more about baptism, uh, you figure that maybe it's time for you to do that, I would encourage you to uh, drop me a line, trey.pbcc, T-R-E-Y dot P-B-C-C at Gmail. And uh, we can talk, definitely. Or there's a, a way to send us a message on our website, uh, powerbutchurch.com, and uh, we would get that as well. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, it's good to know that people are listening to these. Uh, it's, uh, thank you, Lisa Welly, for uh, producing these uh, and uh, just making sure that everything gets put up on those platforms. And thank you, Steve Pittman, for just making sure that we have all of the uh, technical stuff here at the church to be able to do this kind of stuff. God bless you. We'll talk to you next week about the Holy Spirit. Woohoo!